We was able to show the world that, you know, that we didn't have to tear each other down to be successful. We didn't have to instill fear in each other to be successful, that we could actually move major human rights issues, right, through love. Welcome to today's episode of a new sub-series of the podcast, Who Belongs? The Othering and Belonging Institute, with financial support from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, is developing a series of podcasts to capture examples of bridging to belonging. We want a world where everyone belongs. So how do we get there? The answer is bridging. Throughout the series, we will talk to leaders implementing bridging work and individuals who have experienced the bridging transformation. My name is Gerald Lenoir, and strategy analyst at the Othering and Belonging Institute, and I will be hosting today's episode. Today, we are speaking with two of the founding members of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, the president, Desmond Mead, and the political director, Neil Volz. Together, Desmond and Neil have been working on restoring the rights of people who have a prior felony conviction. In 2018, they were successful in passing Amendment 4 of the Florida Constitution that restored the right to vote of over 1.4 million Floridians. How were they successful in getting 65% of Floridians to support this amendment? Bridging. Desmond and Neil did not care about a person's political affiliation or race, but recognized every individual as a human that deserves the right to vote. In this episode, Desmond and Neil discuss their personal path into this work and how they led a campaign that bridged returning citizens and built a winning coalition that restored their right to vote. So together, you've done and are doing amazing work to address felony disenfranchisement in Florida. Tell me, how did you two meet and what was it that pushed you to start bringing people together around this issue and to start the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition? Well, Neil, I think this. <laughs> yeah, I, I could jump in in terms of kind of how how the two of us met, and Des might be able to uh, outline a little bit more about the, the beginnings of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Um, but ultimately, for me in this journey uh, around uh, empowering people with past felony convictions and 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 those who are impacted by the criminal justice system in Florida, uh, I, I, it started for me in 2006 when I got my felony conviction. Um, made some mistakes and, and crossed some lines I shouldn't have crossed, and in the process up into my life. And I, I ended up moving to Florida um, and, and trying to start over. And part of that process dealt with, was, involved a lot of shame and guilt and, and, and trying to work on my own stuff. And um, ultimately in 2015, uh, I was on a college campus helping somebody who I, I went to church with who was trying to set up a, a small group there. And there was a a flyer that, that, that said, you know, come, come learn about felon disenfranchisement in, in, in Florida. And I'd had a lot of friends who had encouraged me to take part in that. Um, but I just wasn't ready. Uh, that, that my heart wasn't there yet. Um, and, and as background, I had uh, been involved in conservative politics for almost 20 years. Um, and so I'm very politically active, civically minded, um, involved in democracy issues. I walked through that, that door on that college campus and right away I, I, I'd see 30, 40 people in the room. Um, and I tell myself, you know, I'm like, wow, this feels a little progressive. And uh, I, I didn't necessarily belong. I, in my own mind, I was like, oh my gosh, do I belong here? Um, I sat down, but I did not think that I was going to stay very long until I heard Desmond speaking. 
And Desmond was very clear about the vision he was casting for this movement and that it, it that there, there was bridging to anybody who was a, somebody like myself with a past felony conviction. He literally said, he's like, look, I don't believe that I have a monopoly on uh, pain or that any group has a monopoly on pain. Um, if you're here and you're somebody with a past felony conviction, you're supposed to be here. And it just locked me in. Uh, we ended up talking for almost two hours at the end of the meeting, and, uh, and he's my brother now, man. I'm, I love him, and, 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 and you know we're on this road together. Um, and but it started with that moment where I felt like, in some small way, I might not belong, which might have been my own issues, but it was the way that Desmond framed everything up that created that initial bridge. I think what Neil, you know, when Neil was talking, I thought it was very interesting. You know that you know he. Typically, have he came from a conservative background, you know, but he was a returning citizen, and he almost did not stay at that meeting, right? Almost didn't think he belonged because, you know, it seemed, as in his words, progressively. You know, I, you know, when we talk about how this movement came to be, you know, it came from personal experience, not a political experience, but a personal experience, interaction, encounter with the justice system and with living in a state that permanently barred anyone convicted of a felony offense from voting. You know, my background is, you know, I I had a substance abuse problem um, and that led me to jail uh, and eventually prison. And it led me to being homeless for quite a number of years. And I, I remember distinctively in, 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 August of 2005, when I was standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on a train to come so I could jump in front of it in my life. Uh, being homeless, recently released from prison, addicted to drugs. I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel, but God had other plans. And, and I crossed those uh, railroad tracks and I checked myself into drug treatment. After completing that, I moved back into a homeless shelter. And while living there, I decided to enroll in one of the local uh, colleges there. And, you know, I had a successful um, time at those co- at the college, and, and I was able to get an associate's as well as a bachelor's. Uh, and eventually I got accepted into law school in May of 2014. I graduated with a law degree. But along that journey, you know, I became aware of a coalition of organizations about over 70 national and state organizations that was focusing on felon disenfranchisement in Florida. And it was mainly a listserv. Uh, and I, I joined that group uh, through my advocacy or activism with a homeless um, advocacy organization in Dade County. And before I could even excel completely, I ended up becoming the president of that group. And in 2011, I officially incorporated Florida Rights Restoration Coalition uh, to be the voice of directly impacted people, to be the voice of people with felony convictions, and to make sure that our voices were centered in the work that, you know, we had laid out ahead for us. And and so it was very intentional, even from the very beginning, uh, especially when I'm traveling the state of Florida and noticing that felony disenfranchisement impacted people from all walks of life, all political persuasions. And so we were very intentional in making sure that this movement, this organization was about people first, right? It was about dealing with the issues that impact um, people like me who couldn't vote, who couldn't, had a hard time finding housing or, or, or jobs. 
So now I'm interested in learning more about the people that are involved in this uh, work with you. Can you describe the type of groups that are coming together this and the type of folks uh, that are coming together? Yeah, I, I, I can uh, I, I can describe kind of the the family, you know, that really fuels this movement from my perspective. And, and that is that people who have had, you know, been impacted by the criminal justice system, you know, loved ones, uh, somebody who has been arrested, somebody who, you know, has a conviction, somebody who's been incarcerated, somebody who's been through community supervision, uh, people all across the entire state of Florida from all walks of life, but who have shared pain and experiences of dealing with the system. In addition to that, dealing with the lack of kind of responsiveness by the political system to the cries of pain and, and, and the desire for change around these issues. Like it, when you silence a million plus people uh, in terms of having any voice in society, it, it isn't any wonder that even well-intentioned people who want to help end up putting your needs into the under the lower list of your, the priorities. And so even people who want to help you end up kind of like, oh, we'll do it. We'll get to it. We want to eventually do that. We want to do this. And it takes somebody, an amazing leader like Desmond, to be able to cast a vision that says, you know what? What if we collectively we, uh, you know, try and move this ourselves. So that's loved ones. That's people, you know, all across the, the, the state. This, 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 this movement was knitted together by real life experiences from people in churches, people in civic groups, people at the local park who simply were saying, hey, this is my opportunity to show love to somebody I care about who's trapped in a system in which they actually have no voice and we don't know what the path forward is. You know the type the type of people that make up that group. You know, I I, I think of uh, of Sam in, in northern rural Florida who grew up in a military family and wanted to serve this country, but at eighteen he got a marijuana conviction. And and, and this is you know he grew up in this conservative family, but for over twenty years this this guy could not have his rights restored. You know, I I, I think about Howie the veteran. You know who uh, put his life on the line to so-called protect democracy, right, and, and serve our country valiantly, and to come back home disabled, right, and because he wrote a bad check to feed himself, you know, uh, could not vote for over thirty years, or or the veteran that came back with PTSD in Jacksonville, and you know he didn't get the proper uh, treatment at, at, at the uh, VA. And he ended up self-medicating himself, and then he ended up catching drug charges. And now he faced a lifetime ban. And I think about Barbara, right? I think about this woman who, when we encountered her, was given six months to live by her doctor. And her dying wish was not to, 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 to uh, meet a celebrity or visit an exotic location, right, or go to Disney World, per se. Her dying wish was to be able to vote again. These are the type of people right, that make up, you know, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. These are the type of people that make up the, the, the constituency, all right, the constituents, the base uh, 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 that we're trying to empower, right, that we're trying to bring in to democracy. They come from all walks of life, and they have some amazing stories uh, 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 of, of redemption. They have some amazing stories of just the trauma that they've gone through and they've been able to overcome. 
Thank you for that uh, description of, of your constituents. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a pretty broad group of folks who are uh, facing felony disenfranchisement. I know that your work has also been a real catalyst for the emergence of a new identity, what you call the returning citizen. Now, I know you said that your group did not make up that term, but can you talk about what it means to you and its role in the success of your work? Sure. That's a, that's a great question because um, it, it speaks to a much broader discussion or about a narrative, right? And and so when we came up with the word returning citizens, it was in the effort to uh, push back against the use of the word felons or cons. You know, uh, what guided us or was it, what was the initial guidance was a study where that showed that when you call someone an ex-con or ex-felon, you actually increase the likelihood of them recidivating, right? It's almost like, you know, what we've heard before, you know, if you keep calling a child stupid growing up, they're going to grow up thinking that they are, they're stupid. And so we wanted to create some type of po- positive energy. Uh, and there are organizations throughout the country that are now, you know, really using different terms such as justice impacted uh, individuals or, or formerly incarcerated individuals. And they're, they're, they're moving away from using the term ex-con, ex-felon. But the bigger picture here, though, right, and, and excuse me for uh, uh, um, uh, uh, speaking a little long on this, but it is so important because I think about, you know, when, when, when we think about the terms that we use to identify people who have been, uh, have a previous felony conviction or who've been impacted by the justice system, I can't help but to think about the U.S.'s involvement in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? When mm-hmm. knowing that the United States had to go through a massive propaganda campaign prior to bombing uh, the, the, these Japanese cities, and they uh, uh, depicted the the Japanese people as dangerous people. Actually, they end up dehumanizing the Japanese people, and, and in in the process of dehumanizing them, there was also desensitizing everyone else as to the plight of Japanese people. So when they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, rather than there being outrage, right, it was actually a celebration, mm-hmm. right. And it's that kind of narrative that says that some people are less than others, are less valuable than others, are less worthy than others. And, and this narrative, it gains its momentum by the use of the terminologies that we use to, de- to describe these individuals. And so we wanted to uplift the humanity in people. We didn't want to be super predators. We didn't want to be, you know, uh, criminals or villains, right? Because when those terms are used, then we're dehumanized and people are less sensitive to the atrocities that we face on a daily basis. And so that's part of the purpose of, of, of the use of returning citizens. Yeah. Neil, you know, we at the Institute often talk about building a bigger we. Do you think the term returning citizens has allowed people who might otherwise be divided to bridge, that is to come together and feel like a meaningful we? Uh, I, yeah, I, I see that every day. Uh, and just to kind of echo what Des was talking about in terms of kind of pushing back on this dehumanization narrative um, that, that creates a culture that makes it easy to divide, right? That makes it easy to 
discard and 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 especially when you start talking about people, right? We're like millions of people in the state of Florida in this particular case, you know, who in many cases it became easy to discard and 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 put to the side of society. And those of us who found ourselves with that label, you know, walk, working through that stigma, we were attracted to this idea of this bigger we, right? That our shared experiences and our shared pain could actually turn into shared purpose. Right. I remember a conversation I had with Des that completely transformed the way I, I identified with the movement was in 2017. We we're actually at a recovery uh, within a recovery community, a recovery center that I was helping to manage at the time while working with FRC and helping us uh, uh, move forward with the petitions at gathering and amendment four. And I was kind of doing my thing, right? Talking to Des, I, I believe that language is incredibly vital, right? Language shapes culture and then culture impacts policy, right? And then policy impacts people's lives. So when we start talking about what language we use, it's really important. But I was a little off, right? I've been, been involved for a couple of years and I'm talking to Des about how do we use the right language to connect with people through a political lens, right? I was doing this kind of right-left stuff. Um, and I remember Des's words, and it's so wise because he was like, look, I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. He's like, you know, there might be some value in how we kind of use the different words, you know, uh, to connect with people. He's like, but what I'm telling you is that this movement's deeper than that. He's like, and at the end of the day, we're going to win if people see us as people, and we're going to lose if people see us as less than that. Right. And that's a reflection of the, the headwinds that we you continue to face in terms of this dehumanization and this kind of casualness of, you know, talking about people as felons. And, you know, it's like it creates a division and, uh, you know, between how we see each other. And we fight very hard and we believe to our core that part of our mission is to try and get rid of those those blinders and that that that, that we so many of us naturally have these narrative blinders that just immediately you're you're able to like look at somebody as less than and and that's at the heart of this work yeah it seems like the term a returning citizen is a container that allows for people of different races and backgrounds to have a shared narrative project as you pointed out in an identity project can you talk about the work of bridging across race with people coming out of the context of incarceration with enforced segregation and racial animus Wow, that, that you you packed a lot into that question, yeah, Gerald. You know, I mean, uh, let me start with this. You know, I remember when I first was introduced to felon disenfranchisement. You know, I was under the impression that this only applied to African Americans, right? Um, and there was a lot of attention on on the African American community, the dis, uh, disproportionate impact that it has on the African American community, and the history that 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 racist history of felon disenfranchisement, knowing that that we've seen its reemergence um after the uh the, the slaves were freed, right, during the Reconstruction era, as part of uh, a, a slew of Jim Crow laws that was meant to basically minimize the political impact of 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 African Americans. You know, but as I was traveling throughout the state of Florida, Man, I started meeting people like Neil, right? And 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 I, I, my eyes started slowly opening, understanding that wait a minute, you know, this don't only impact African Americans; they impact white Americans, they impact Latino Americans, all kinds, right? That that you know, I, I I went back to thinking about how when I was arrested, the police didn't ask me if I was a Republican or Democrat, 
and nor did uh, 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 the judge, right? But at the end of the day, what I seen was that, man, there was like almost three times as many whites and Latinos that was impacted than there were African-Americans, right? When you group the white and Latinos, because African-Americans only really uh, accounted for about a third of people who are disenfranchised in Florida. And so I, we knew that if we were going to address this issue, it just couldn't be an African-American issue, which meant that we had to recognize, we had to acknowledge, and we had to engage uh, 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 the white community. And when we were able to do that, it really allowed our message to be universal. And no matter what the race was, that universal language that we use was able to connect with everyone and what we did was we actually elevated it even above this issue, even above the implicit racial biases that we experience in our in, in, in this country and especially in the state of Florida uh, for quite some time. And we were able to bring unlikely uh, 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 folks together to mm-hmm. actually say yes on four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know the other thing that you have high importance for is engaging everyone regardless of political affiliation or ideology in your work. Can you talk more about why this framing is important? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, 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 the framing around connecting people along the lines of humanity uh, is, is so foundational for the work that we do um, from the, the, the bigger picture of, of seeing people as people. Um, so I think that that sets that fundamental frame, you know, every day we get up, you know, h- how do we kind of help guide, guide, you know, anybody who we're working with from that perspective. But it also had a, a very tangible, you know, when you when we get into just the conversation around Amendment 4 and getting 60 percent of the vote in, in, in the state of Florida, uh, then there is kind of this, you know, you're in a moment in time. And you have a campaign and a goal that you're trying to achieve so that, that you then, you know, have to operationalize some of these things without ever veering from the fundamentals. Right? And I think it's very important to know that, that there's a heartbeat to this movement, that Amendment 4 was a reflection of that and the fight continues. Um, but we were in a state of Florida in which, I mean, look, everybody who knew anything was saying you can't pass something like this in, you know, in the state of Florida. You're going to talk about crime and race and, you know, talk about about voting and you're going to have to get, you know, 60% of the vote. Um, but, but I think that some of the strategies were simply birthed out of the natural view of connecting with people along the lines of humanity. And right? then, and you walked in the trailer park, man, like right across from where I live, man, you're, you're talking the same talk as you are if you walk into you know, kind of an urban community with predominantly African-Americans, right? Like I think that what Desmond's, I love, how he shares his story because mine comes from the other place right where it's like i i i needed to learn and continue to learn uh, about what the experience is like with you know uh, folks who are black or you know who uh, have a different experience than i had but we also have some same experiences that hold us together and i think there's a dynamism that there's a commitment to giving people the space to grow and change and and, and learn uh, that is important to the work too that we are not a snapshot that we actually can be in proximity to each other have real healthy, you know, differences that come from healthy places and then change together in some ways, or at least learn together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
there's another piece to that too, Gerald. And it's about what, I mean, how do we imagine democracy, right? What is democracy all about? Because I know that there was a point, you know, when you talk about the birth of this country that where it was basically white men or landowners that was able to be able to vote, participate in democracy. And that expanded and it it, 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 it included uh, uh, people who weren't landowners, it included uh, uh, women and, 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 you know, it, it just kept expanding. And, and so there is that concept about one man, one vote, and that that no matter what the color of your skin, no matter what your political preference is, that as American citizen, that you have a right to be able to voice or participate in selecting who governs you, right, or who is handling the affairs of, of society. And so when we talk about really advocating for a more inclusive democracy, then we cannot uh, engage in just advocating uh, for democracy for people who we think think like us or vote like us or look like us, right? Because once we do that, then that's not what democracy is all about. Democracy is a cornucopia of ideas, of, of, of principles, a cornucopia of perspectives and, and realities, you know, that come together to 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 form this vibrant thing that that serves as the uh, I guess the glue of our society, and so you know even with our engagement with 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 Amendment Four, one of the, we would tell folks that listen, we're fighting just as hard for that person who wanted to vote for Donald Trump as we were for that person who wished they could have voted for President Barack Obama, right? Because at the end of the day. What we know is that every American citizen should have a uh, clear and unencumbered access, right, to the ballot box, and be having and should be given the opportunity to have their voices heard when it comes time to elections. Yeah, yeah. Desmond, I want to return to this notion of bridging, and I've heard you describe bridging as something that is naturally within us, and this work is about reawakening what God has already placed in us. Can you talk more about this in the context of your work with returning citizens? You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a story I, I wrote I, in my book, uh, Let My People Vote. And I talk about a relationship that I had with this young lady named Amy. We were both kids. We were like uh, kindergarten age. And Amy was white and I was black. Uh, but we didn't we didn't even recognize that. And uh, she was uh, the granddaughter of an evangelist that was on the island of St. Croix that was opening up a church. And our family was a part of that church, but it came time for Amy to leave. And the story that I wrote in my book was about how when we, when, the fam- when Amy and her family was leaving, Amy and I was in the middle of the airport hugging each other, screaming our lungs out, right? Because we didn't want to be separated. And our parents had to come and grab us and pull us apart Right. And go their separate ways. And then we would break free from our parents, run back to each other and just cling to each other for their life. Right. That is something that is natural. This this division, this this all of these isms are are things that, you know, are are actually taught. But it's not part of our natural, our just natural being. Right. And, And we see that, you know, every day, you know, most recently, you know, in the uh, tragedy that happened in South Florida, 
uh, when the, uh, the the condominiums collapse in 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 the city of Surfside, right? That you know when those first responders and 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 folks went to that uh, scene and they were digging in that rubble. You know, no one was concerned about how the people voted or whether what their immigration status was or their sexual identity or how much money they made. The only thing that they connected with was that it was another human being. And there were people digging in that rubble as if their own kinfolks was buried underneath. Right. And that's the connectivity of our humanity. Right. That transcends our, our, our partisan leanings or political leanings that transcends our implicit racial bias. And I believe that if that can show up in, in, in moments of crisis, if that can show up after after hurricanes, then that means that we have, there is a, a, a good possibility that that can show up during everyday, our yeah. everyday lives. That we don't, you know, we don't have to wait for these things to occur, right? And that we could start engaging in that and I know it's going to be hard because we have political forces that seek to divide us, right? And, and and But at the end of the day, I think we can overcome that. And we could actually see more instances of people just coming together, uh, irrespective of their uh, beliefs, and, and really uh, honoring the humanity, uh, the shared humanity among us. Yes. Uh, Neil, I want to uh, turn back to this issue of Amendment 4 and the campaign around Amendment 4. And you mentioned there was some uh, doubting Thomases about whether or not you could reach the 60% threshold uh, to get Amendment 4 passed. Can you talk about uh, what those disagreements were and any aspects of the approach you took to the work to, to uh, quell some of those doubts? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think that some of the doubts were just kind of the, the fear of the status quo of the, you know, this is what we know and this is how we've always done work. Um, and, and, and kind of the way that uh, this movement, you know, led by Des has kind of reoriented how we see, you know, our organizing and how we, we show up with people. We simply were dedicated to going and talking, you know, and empowering people who are returning citizens in the state. Right. So I think there's sometimes there's this general orientation that it's like the politics flows through the narrative around the politicians. Right. Well, we we, we made a decision. We didn't want politicians in, involved in this, you know, kind of the messaging or we didn't want politicians with us on stages when we were talking about Amendment 4. Our fundamental belief was that if we could empower local people to share their stories. And trust me, as somebody who, by the time I met Desmond, inadvertently, I didn't even realize how much I had done it. I had built my life away from my felony conviction, right? To the point when I jumped fully in, some of my closest friends were like, I didn't even know you had a felony conviction, right? It, it, you know, And so it's like testament to, yes, you can move on and you can grow and you can choose how you want to see yourselves. But we have people with felony convictions all across the state of Florida. They got the vision. They understood that they were the mission, right? So if they got out and talked to their local paper, talked to the local radio station, went and talked to 200 people in the community, we could see what we saw in, in November of 2018, which is 
individual voters going and voting for loved ones. They did not go vote for a governor candidate. They did not go vote for a Senate candidate. They went and voted for their aunt or their neighbor or that person they go to school with. And that is a testament to like building a, a, a frame around real values that we can are pretty universal and, and love. And we did make some very concerted efforts, you know, in terms of bridge building with people from all walks of life and to use language that did not, you know, divide, right? So even the idea, I believe that we have, we have, you know, in the constitution, there's a right to vote. I'm a democracy activist. I dedicate my life to the principles of democracy, but we also realize that half the public believes that the, that the voting is a privilege. So we decided to say, we have a goal here in this moment, in this time to get this passed. Those are worthy debates to have, but not in this moment in this time. So we used language that talked about allowing people to have the ability to vote so as to not trigger one side or the other or pit one side to another. There were examples of doing things intentionally like that to make sure that the we was as broad as possible and that we were simply focused on real lives of real people, especially at the local level. Gerald, you know, I've got to add that you know, in, in, in one case, it, it was understandable about the naysayers. I mean, because at the end of the day, you're talking about engaging in a very controversial subject, which was restoring voting rights to people with felony convictions, doing it in a controversial state such as Florida, and doing it during a controversial moment in, in, in our country's history where there was so much division and fear that was being spread around. The issue, and I'm not even going to say issue. Let me let me walk that back. The problem, right, was that people were looking at that through a political lens, and so and there were some very erroneous assumptions that was being made. Assumption number one that felon disenfranchisement was totally a black issue. Assumption number two that all black people vote Democrat, right? And then assumption number three is that if you give black People who are, um, if you give black people who have felony convictions the right to vote, they're going to vote Democrat and it's going to be bad for Republicans, right? And that's looking at it squarely through a political lens or the type of lens that just keep us divided along the lines of race or political beliefs, right? And those, those filters completely ignored the fact that, number one, that this thing impacted more than just African-Americans, right? And, and and it impacted more than just Democrats, right? And that a lot of the folks who were impacted weren't even in prison, right? These were people that was out in our community, in our churches, uh, at our jobs. You know, these were regular everyday people. And we were able to overcome that because we were able to move all of those lenses that said that we needed to be different, that we needed to be separated, right? And we was able to bring people together. And the bonding force that we used to bring those people together was love. We organized around love, right? And that love was able to just just to, to break through the, the cloud of, of whether you're left or right or black or white or Latinx or, you know, it was able to break through all of that that clutter, right, and take us to a very pure place that allowed us to be successful. So, yeah, I know that the amendment uh, ex- 
even though you were successful, it excludes people who've committed certain crimes like murder or felony sexual assault. My understanding is that this was a strategic choice. The campaign needed to get 60% of the Floridians to vote for the initiative. And that may have been too high a bar if opponents uh, could uh, if opponents attack it as benefiting people with certain criminal history. But you were successful in building this bridge of empathy and solidarity with other returning citizens, also with criminal records. How are you how are you able to do that? And do you foresee in the future being able to extend that kind of empathy to those with murder and felony sexual assault convictions? Who, yes. uh, in in this round, did not benefit from Amendment Four. Well, that empathy has always been there. You know, our our belief is that no American citizen should be denied access to the ballot box uh, because of a felony offense, none whatsoever. Right? That they should be able uh, to to vote. But this speaks to even some of the challenges that that a lot of uh, grassroots organizations, even across the country, face today. Right. How far can you go? Right. Without having the public along with you. Right. So we may have the greatest ideas in our minds that we could have that vision of utopia and you could push for that and you can go out there. But if the public is not with you. Right. At the end of the day, when all of the votes are counted, you're going to be looking around saying what the heck just happened. Right. And so we were very, very, very thorough in analyzing the 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 the. Um, the beliefs or the, you know, the feelings of many demographics, whether they were conservative, whether they were progressive, whether they were white, black, Latinx, uh, we went throughout the entire state and, and it was very clear to us uh, from every demographic, right, that it was going to be a problem. Being that Florida it was the toughest state to pass uh, a, a constitutional amendment, that it would have been some serious problems. Um, if we, if it would have been, if uh, a people with felony sex offense, in particular, rapists, child molesters, and people who kill people, there would have been a huge problem in actually getting that passed. Um, we agonized over that for months. It actually delayed the campaign for about six to seven months. Uh, we did even further analysis. And a couple of things that really allowed us to move forward was that, number one, out of the, at that time, it was over 1.54 million people who were impacted by felon disenfranchisement in, um, in in Florida. I think less than, I think less than 2% uh, were people who fit those categories. And so you had basically 98% of the people uh, would, would benefit uh, from the passage of, of Amendment 4. The other thing was, was that we engage even some of our own members who fell into those categories or we engage the parents of people who uh, fell into those categories and we walk through that process with them and we uh, realize that even though what amendment four did was give you a fast track to be able to get the right to vote back but it did not automatically foreclose on people being able to go through the alternative route, which was through the clemency process to get their voting rights back. So there was still hope there uh, for those individuals that fell within those categories. But we knew um, through extensive research that Amendment 4 would not have been successful 
uh, if it was just a blanket uh, application. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if I could just add to that, because like Desmond said, like, uh, you know, the carve-outs aren't a reflection of our morals and values, but a, a reflection of a, a strategic decision um, to move as far as we possibly can, as quick as we possibly can. And we saw that the backside of that after the amendment passed, in which the legislature, when they began the process of implementing Amendment 4, even though we told them we didn't think there needed to be implementing language, they took that on themselves. And you suddenly saw that they were trying to expand the definition of murder, for instance, into things like manslaughter, attempted murder, you know, and, and redefining some of the very words, right? Again, we keep coming back to this bridging concept and the importance of words, but those are tens of thousands of lives, you know, that all of a sudden the legislature, you know, somewhat willy nilly is like, oh, well, we're just going to expand this thing step by step by step. And when you're focused on people the way that we are, right, you're, you're seeing tens of thousands of human beings suddenly being moved from one side of the line to the other. When to your point, our goal is, is that everybody can be restored and that no one should lose their fundamental rights, you know, to be heard in society and that we want to keep pushing the other way. Uh, so but Des is right on in terms of like you. Right. We need to have and be aware of where the public is on the issues that are important to uh, us as, as, as we fight for humanity, um, if we are to be successful. So I want to return uh, to the theme of this podcast, Bridging to Belonging. How would you say that your work fosters an authentic sense of belonging among those impacted? And can you tell me a story that kind of illustrates that? You know, my initial reaction to that is that you know, uh, one of the ways that we do that is by restoring the right to vote, the folks, because when these folks uh, get the right to vote, when we get the right to vote, then we force people to have to deal with our issues because we actually have the power to actually determine the outcome of ele even local elections. I mean, when you talk about, you know, um, uh, uh, district attorney races, uh, judicial races, uh, mayoral races, you know, all of those uh, uh, um, offices, all right, are susceptible to influence by people who historically have been shut out of the process. And so now that they have the right to vote back, uh, we've actually forced ourselves onto the scene and we're a growing force to be reckoned with. But even on a personal level, I can talk about one of our, our members who used to... Uh, um, she wanted to vote so bad. She every election she used to go down to the supervisor of elections office just to watch people vote. Right? She yearned for it so much. Right? And then eventually, because of the passage of Amendment 4, she was able to get her right to vote back. But she didn't stop there. Right? When elections came around, she was one of the many returning citizens that participated in in, in classes so that they can be poll watchers, right? And so now she's out there, right, not only just voting, but she is actively participating in our democracy as a poll watcher. And you see the transformation in her, you know, where from someone who was unsure of themselves or someone who was walking with their head down to someone now who stands proudly and firm, 
right, firmly on, on, on the ground saying that, listen, no, I belong, I matter, my voice count, right, and I'm going to be active and play a, 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 a significant role in ensuring that our democracy flourishes. And so we see stories like that all the time, and it, it's amazing what the restoration of voting rights can do to an individual who for so however many years was told that they don't belong, all right, that they're the scourge of the earth and they have to be a felon and, and the lowest, uh, uh, I guess, have the lowest part on the totem pole for the rest of their lives. Um, the example that I keep coming back to is there was a gentleman named Vaughn who um, was uh, came to our advocacy day. So we would we we typically bring you know seven eight hundred returning citizens to Tallahassee, um, and and this is after Amendment Four. So suddenly, right, like there's people are starting to see that their voices are being heard. And what I saw in this moment was because I was blessed to be able to walk with him to different offices was the power of that story suddenly the the level playing field that Des was just talking about in which now, hey, we've got the vote, so people are going to listen. So suddenly you have access. But then the story itself, his story was one in which while he was incarcerated, that he was, he, he, he learned how to be a barber, right? So uh, and and that's something that's very fulfilling to him. It helped build community as he's cutting people's hair and, and, and talking to folks while he's doing that. Mind you that the tax dollars are paying to train him to be a barber. And then when he uh, is released, society is actually telling him, you can't get the license to be a barber, even though, you know, there's this, you know, the past that, that, that comes... And, and when I think of authenticity, which was a part of your word, I think that it's it's living in the moment, honestly, right? And 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 he, his story in and of itself said, look at my past, how I got here, and where are we going in the future? Can you defend continuing this policy that doesn't work? Republican, Democrat, did not matter. You could not sit with him and talk to anybody and have them defend that policy going forward. So even the idea of everybody's voice matters, it also is like, what are we saying, right? We're taking our stories and sharing them in a way. And in some cases, people had no idea that that was even a, a problem, but we were able to help solve that particular issue in that year because there wasn't, you can't defend that, yeah. right? There is no defending that. And so it was really neat from the bridge building perspective to, to see what happens when somebody gets their voice back and then they're able to take, let me share my story with you so that you can understand better some of the challenges we face. And we saw a bridge get built in that moment. And at least, you know, I'm, I'm a hopeful person. I know Des is a hopeful person. So, and we, we need that hope to fuel this movement. Um, and, and, and so that was a very hopeful moment that uh, when we build bridges, you can make changes. Yes. So I know that you're not stopping with the 2018 ballot victory in Florida, and you continue to uh, on uh, uh, addressing some of the barriers that the that the state government has put uh, in front of you for the uh, for uh, the implementation of of the amendment four, and also working to restore all the civil rights uh, of returning citizens like the ability to serve on a jury. Uh, what do you think uh, your continuing work uh, restoring civil rights and continuing work on Amendment 4 
Why do you think it's so important to the communities that you serve? Empowering people who have been impacted by the justice system. It actually impacts all of us, right? Not only does it impact how we see each other and how we identify with each other, but on a very tangible level, you know, it, it has incredible impact in our communities. We're working right now a lot with people who are looking to get find employment and people who are looking to hire uh, folks. And you see this kind of synergy coming together in which if somebody is able to reintegrate into the community, get employment, uh, find housing, well, you know what? That's going to be a benefit. It's a transformative type of thing for an individual, the family of the individual. And in the process, that helps the community, right? Because let's face it, if, if somebody is coming out of community supervision, incarceration, trying to reintegrate into the community, and there isn't an uh, available pathway, we're going to start going back to what we what we know how to do, right? So it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to fall back, and potentially that's going to be a negative impact on the community, right? So we feel that by focusing on empowering, you know, returning citizens, our families, our loved ones, like that the chain is only as strong as its weakest link, that ultimately this impacts all of us, even beyond... The, the, how we identify and how we see each other on in our community as it relates to you know better schools, better hospitals, and the and the and the ability to tangibly you know improve people's lives. You said it. <laughs> you know, I, I think of of when I think of democracy, I think about you know um, the body. You know, one of the most important elements in the body is actually water, um, and how, you know, democracy, you know, is like this body that needs water and the water is actually people participating uh, and voting. Um, one of the things that we, we realized very early on was that there's no better emissary um, or ambassador uh, to talk about how valuable the right to vote is and how we honor that right by actually going out to vote and participating in elections. There's no one better to talk about that than someone who's lost the right to vote and had to fight long and hard to get it back. And so in addition to uh, our own individual uh, restoration of, of, of voting rights, that you know we can be a catalyst to restore uh, a level of energy or infuse a level of energy around them participating in democracy. We could be a catalyst for creating a more vibrant and more inclusive democracy. And that is so important because the more people participate, the more vibrant this democracy become. And, and I think that's good for everyone, right? And, and, and so I don't just want to tell people who might, I think might vote like me to make sure they go vote. I want everybody to go vote, right? Because the more people that engage, and we've seen that happen even in 2020 uh, election, right? That we've seen the turnout like none other before. And it was made even more special because it was a turnout that occurred in the midst of a pandemic, right? When there was so much concern about turnout. We've seen a record number of first-time voters. We've seen a record number of young voters. We've seen a, a, a record number of people with felony convictions actually 
going to the polls and voting and the majority of them voting early. Man, that is something to celebrate. And we want to continue to build on that. We want to continue to generate an excitement about being engaged. And so those individuals who don't have a felony conviction, who never lost the right to vote and are registered but don't vote, man, we need to get them voting. And and those who are eligible to register the vote but are not, we need to get them registered and voting as well. And so that's all part of the process, right? And I think that we're we're good um, ambassadors to really push that. So my final question really is, uh, again, looking towards the future and in uh, your work with returning citizens. And my question is, do you see this as a movement or an identity that endures beyond the issue of reenfranchisement? And, and how does that happen? You would need tough questions. <laughs> you know, I... It, you know, you know, I I don't know if if I can you know really be able to articulate the, like this nuances between you know whether this is a movement or this is something other than a movement. You know what I think when I look at this is, is that this is a, a, an attempt to really just to transform. Um, uh, the way we think about each other, uh, transform to to debunk a, a narrative that that has uh, for decades uh, uh, separated us, a narrative that we see even today uh, in full effect. You know, even around the, this pandemic, where we're separating people and 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 dehumanizing people based on whether they want to wear a mask or not, right? And totally forgetting about the health and the humanity of folks. Um, and so I, I, I see this as something bigger. I, I think movement might might minimize what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And I think how we accomplish it, um, even though I can't give you a name for what we're doing, I think how we accomplish it is really just by uh, continuing to be out there and to challenge people to do things different. Uh, we did that with Amendment 4. You know, uh, we went against a, a lot of conventional wisdom in Amendment 4, and we were able to show the world that, you know, that we didn't have to tear each other down to be successful. We didn't have to instill fear in each other to be successful, that we could actually move major human rights issues, right, through love, right? And and we're going to continue to do that because at the end of the day, you know, uh, it's always been said that what hate can't drive out hate and fear can't drive out fear and darkness can't drive darkness out. But but that love, that love can conquer so much. And and, and so we're going to continue to let that be our driving force and believe, uh, uh, have hope and faith that love will overcome these isms, love will overcome these narratives Right. And allow us to understand that when we look at each other, what we see is a reflection of ourselves and that there's so much of our humanity that is that is that is tying us together than those uh, petty things that actually separate us. Yeah. And I I would I would just add to that, that. uh, uh, Yeah. I mean, I I love Desmond, man. And and, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I feel like family with him. And, and as he was talking, I was thinking about when Des got a name to Time 100's most influential people in the world list. And people were asking me like, hey, what's, 
you know, what's so special about Desmond? And, and it, it's, it's this effusive love that he has, but a belief in humanity, right? That, that our differences are our strength and, and, and that, that being in proximity to other human beings brings with it an energy. And that's not some sort of like, you know, a, a, a secret call for everybody to see things the same way and believe things the same way as much as a belief in loving other people. That in my life, some of the best change that I've ever made in my life came about when somebody loved me enough to disagree with what I was seeing or doing. And that we should be strong enough in our commitment to diversity to be able to be in proximity with each other and listen and learn and move forward in a way that's focused on people and we can learn from each other and that does that. And that's this, and that's why I love just how Des, you, you kind of like taking the movement, you know, might be too small, right? Because when you think of it, Des is wearing a shirt right now, it says, let my people vote, right? But that's like, let my people work, let my people rent, let my people drive, let my, like, let's let people be people, you know? And, and that's when we know that we're winning. That was President Desmond Mead and political director Neil Boltz of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Thank you so much for your time. And to our listeners, please check out our other podcasts where we discuss belonging and bridging in more detail. For more resources and curriculums on belonging and bridging, please go to belonging.berkeley.edu slash B for B. That is slash letter B, number four, letter B. To follow our guesswork, go to floridarcc.com. Thank you for listening.